Tiger Woods is leading the British Open right now for all of you that did not know that. So that's also a mile marker for me, uh, uh, a career milestone. So I'm really appreciative of, of Tiger for making that career accomplishment come to be. We hope that he wins today. Uh, also, as a first, this is the first time that I've ever preached on hardcore prescription pain meds. Um, and so the... And so the calculated, very methodical, compartmentalized, organized pastor tanner that you all might be used to is a little looser today. Um, I took an Oxycontin less than an hour ago. So um, if you see me dozing off or if you see me talking about stuff that has nothing to do with the sermon uh, I'm going to do my best to try to stay intact today. Just do not judge or base my preaching abilities off of this one sermon. Um, today we are asking that the Holy Spirit just take over. And, uh, and so, uh, so, Lord, we love you. Uh, this morning, if you, would, uh, if you would turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, we'll get this thing rolling. So excited! Uh, we're getting. I was telling Dalton earlier. I haven't got to see Dalton or Ruthie really at all this week, and they've done an incredible job just keeping the uh, the youth ministry and college ministry running. In my absence, they're two incredible, incredible people that we have on staff here, and so we love them. But I was telling I was telling Dalton this morning. I said, uh, I said, uh, you know, fall's getting here. Like like time's just flown. We've gotten through seven months through the year and. We're about to hit August, and it's just like 2018's flown by. But the one good thing about that is all of our college students are coming back into town. And so uh, I've just got to see Daniel and Reeve. They came up and shook my hand, and I love seeing them. I don't know where they're sitting right now, but I love seeing you guys and, uh, and, and Daniel White over here. And so just, just all, all of our college students who are coming back into town, we love you, and, and I'm excited about that. This morning, uh, I'm going to read a passage of Scripture in Mark 1 that really doesn't get preached on that very often, and so uh, I'm going to attempt to do my best with it. But Mark chapter 1, verse 35, uh, I think they've put a, a title on this message uh, called, What Does It Look Like to Be in Love? Um, it has nothing to do with the fact that I just got married. Uh, it has everything to do with the Scripture. So um, look at Mark 1, 35. Uh, I plan on being... Uh, pretty brief today. Uh, I don't want to uh, don't want to waste your time. Just want to dive right in. So, Mark one thirty Mark one thirty five says, "Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. He being Jesus and Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and when they found him, they said to him, Everyone is looking for you.'" But he said to them, Let us go into the next towns, that I may preach there also, because of this purpose I have come forth. And he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. Let us pray. Father, this morning I pray that you would open our eyes of, of wisdom and understanding and revelation. I pray that you would allow us to see Jesus in a different light and also see us in comparison to the Son of God. I pray that this morning we um, would find our heart of, of passion for the Son of Man again, and that you would light our fire to pursue Jesus like maybe we've veered away from. But this morning, um, draw us closer, draw us near, have grace for us, and let us see you in your name. Amen. It's real difficult. I've, I've, I've found that there's a lot of things that's really hard to do one-handed. Uh, putting in contacts, not the way to go. Um, trying to drink water and preach at the same time is not going to be the way to go, so we're going to have to pause a little bit as we go through this, because you guys know how much water I consume when I preach, so y'all just bear with me. Y'all with me this morning? Amen. Good. Uh, Mark 1, 35 through 38, it's always been a fascinating passage of scripture to me uh, for a couple of different reasons. One, I'm a, I'm a history buff when it comes to the Bible, and I love context, and so anytime I'm looking uh, at a passage of scripture, I like to know what's going on. Uh, with the disciples, what's going on with the characters, what's going on with Jesus, what's God trying to accomplish, and the grand scheme of his overall will and plan. And so looking at the characters that are in this story, uh, it's a very, you know, just kind of um, weird passage and a weird thing that Mark throws in. You know, uh, the one thing we know about Mark and studying the Bible is that Mark, number one, 
Um, Mark was the first gospel that was written. Uh, most scholars believe, we call it Markian authority, that Mark was written before Matthew, before Luke, and certainly before John, as John was the latest. But um, for a long time, people believed that Matthew was the first, but actually Mark was the first. And so Mark, uh, being the first, he tends to kind of get right to the point. He doesn't, he's not as detailed as Luke is. He doesn't have as many stories as Matthew does uh, because they pulled from Mark as their primary source. And so Mark, he kind of just gets right to the point. He doesn't really waste his time. But he throws in this kind of just weird passage here from Mark 135 through 38. You know, he goes through the whole uh, uh, narrative of Jesus' beginning in ministry and calling the disciples. And then he jumps right into his healings and his miracles in Mark chapter 2. But you have this short little three to four verse story here where Jesus wakes up, goes into the woods, prays, his disciples find him praying, and then they go into the next town, right? And it's kind of like, why did Mark put that in there? And so I want to try to highlight this morning very briefly a couple of things that I think the Lord was trying to communicate, that Mark was trying to communicate later on. Uh, you'll see uh, a, a kind of contrast between this story and another story, some comparison and, and, and contrast between Mark 1 and Mark 14 that we're going to look at. But let's just look at this this morning. The first thing that we have to realize about this passage is that it's the beginning stages of Jesus' interaction with his disciples, right? So this is the very beginning. So Jesus has just called these men to him. They've seen the first fruits of his ministry. The very first miracle is probably the wedding of Cana of Galilee. They may have seen two or three other miracles. But there's this utter fascination that the disciples have with Jesus at this point. Right, So much so that they're willing to follow him wherever he may go. We see one thing about the nature of Jesus here in this passage and throughout the whole gospel writing of Mark that's so evident that the church needs to grab hold of today. And that is this, that Jesus is, he was, he is, and he always will be the most gravitational figure that has ever walked the face of the earth. He's the only man that's ever been able to say two words and perfectly sensible people that have careers and jobs and families and aspirations drop everything that they've ever worked for in order to follow a man that says two words. He's the only man in history that could look into a man's soul and say, follow me. And perfectly sensible men that have great businesses, that have big families, that have responsibilities, drop everything to follow a man that they just met that said two words. Right? They're totally uh, engulfed with just fascination and wonder and excitement for this man that they just started following. And so it, 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 I want to kind of bring that back to us for a second and, and call to remembrance the times in our life where we were so fascinated with Jesus. Right, for many of us, the most fascinated time we've ever had with Jesus was right at the beginning stages of walking with him. Right, right when he first grabbed your heart, right when you first had a revelation of grace and an understanding of what God did in his plan of mercy when he brought you out of darkness into marvelous light and he brought you out of the miry clay and set your feet upon a solid rock. We remember those days when we were so fascinated with Jesus that we would run into the streets and tell people we couldn't wait to tell our co-workers and we couldn't wait to tell our mama and our daddy and we couldn't wait to tell our brothers and sisters or our husbands or wife or whoever that we can meet about this man Jesus that we had just met and the disciples are at this point that so many of us in here have been at I have been there I remember I told our, I've told our press uh, students and I've told our youth about a time in my life, I remember when I was like 13, 14, I just started preaching. Uh, I had just really bought into this whole Christianity thing. And I remember being in a youth service with like 13 kids, right? Nobody there. Uh, I remember just being so excited from, from encountering the presence of God. Being so excited from just uh, uh, kind of basking in the grace of God that He would come after my heart, that He would come after me. And I remember running out of the youth building literally sprinting out of the youth building and running to the pizza hut which was about a quarter of a mile away 
and preaching to every single person and employee that was in that pizza hut at 14 years old because I was so excited about what Jesus was doing in my life. I couldn't get enough of him. I remember being so fascinated with Jesus that I would lay my head down at the end of the bed. I told, I told people this story before where I remember being so young and I would put my feet at the headboard and I would put my feet down where the footboard should be and I would let my head hang off the bed and I would hold the Bible up so I could look at the Bible and I would read and read and read and I would keep my head down so the blood would rush to my head so I wouldn't fall asleep so I could keep reading and reading and reading because I was so fascinated by this man that had just revealed himself to me and that's where the disciples were. I remember being that hot. I remember being that fiery. I remember being so in love. Let me tell you, I could fix every problem in your life right now with a fresh, white-hot love affair with Jesus. Every issue that you have in your life right now, all of them, could be fixed in a moment when you fall in love with Him. Hear me. Not because it's going to bring you financial blessing. That's what I'm saying. I'm not saying you're going to fall in love with Jesus and then all your finances are going to turn around. I'm not saying that you're going to fall in love with Jesus and then everything in your life's going to work out. You're going to get the job that you want and you're going to get promoted and everything's going to work out. No. But when you fall in love with Him, everything that you've set your heart towards that is not worthy of your affection starts to fall by the wayside. And what you were created to love, you begin to love and everything else seems meaningless. And for many of us, we've been in that season of life where we've been so on fire, so in love. And that's where these disciples are. They're so in love with this man that they just started following, that they follow him out into the middle of the woods. They follow him into the middle of the woods. These men that had houses and families, some of them wives and children, lay their head down on the cold ground, probably sleeping on a rock to follow this man. And they're so fascinated by him that they're willing to wake up at 5, 4, 5, 6 in the morning to follow this man. Like they're so intrigued by who he is. You can, just, you can see the scene where you're all laying on the ground. It's the 12 of you laying there. And Jesus might be in the middle or he might be on the outside. And, and one of the disciples wakes up and hear this, they, they hear Jesus, this man that they're following, start scurrying around and moving around. And he starts making his way into the woods to try to find a private place. And they're all like hitting themselves like, come on, wake up, wake up, get up. Wipe the sleep from your eyes let's go follow him let's go see what he does next like they're so in love that they're willing okay I don't have to sleep right now because I want to see what he does next so they wake up and they start following him into the woods and they just sit there and watch and hear him pray many times I've asked myself the question or I've asked other people this question where is one place in the Bible that if you could just take yourself out of 2018 and interject yourself into biblical history and be in a scene that's recorded in the Bible, where would you want to go? And I've thought about this long and hard. And I truly believe the one place that I would want to go is anywhere in the scripture where Jesus is praying. The signs and the miracles and the wonders are all great. But could you imagine with me for a second what it would be like to hear a man pray that's not hindered by sin, that's the, the, uh, the communication lines have not been eroded by immorality or by wrong thinking or by a wrong perspective, but he could have clear communication with the creator of the universe and what it would be like to sit in and listen and hear the mysteries of heaven as he prays and communicates with the Father. Could you imagine what that would be like? I'm so envious and jealous of the disciples because they got to walk for three and a half years with the man that they could have just laid there and just asked him the questions. What was it like when you saw Satan fall? Cherubim. What are they like? What are these six-winged creatures? 
streets of gold. What is this streets of gold thing? Is it literal gold? Is it something that's figurative? Do we have pearly gates, really? Or, or is it just a figment of imagination? What is heaven really like? What's the Father like? What is his mouth like? What are his eyes like? What is his hair like? What's the throne of heaven? What's it made of? What? You get to ask all of these questions to this man. They're so fascinated by him. They're so in love with him. And you would like to think that they stayed in this place, right? You would think that at the very beginning of walking with Jesus, that seeing the miracles, that seeing the love, that seeing the grace, that seeing the wisdom and revelation and understanding of the way that the world worked because He was there when it was created, you would think that that fascination and that wonder and that amazement would just continue to grow. But something happened in the disciples' life that so unfortunately all too often happens in our life, including my own. They lose it. That wonder and amazement, that fascination with who he is, willing to follow him out to a place of prayer just to hear what he's got to say. They lose it. And this morning as I'm sitting here and I'm talking to you and I'm talking about that time, maybe when you were a kid, maybe when you were coming home from summer camp, maybe when you saw your first miracle, or maybe when you heard the gospel for the first time and it really resonated in your heart, or maybe the first time that you came to a service and you felt the presence of God, or maybe it was the first time that you kneeled down beside your bed and you felt the love of God flood through your veins. Maybe it was then that set you on fire. But as I talked about even my experience with being in love with Him, you were brought back to that place to this morning and you wondered how did I get where I'm at right now so let's just look at the disciples y'all with me I don't know if y'all are y'all sure you realize the pull of Jesus the gravitational pull of Jesus could say follow me and perfectly sensible men drop everything to follow him makes me call into question why we promote anything other than him our fancy buildings our glamorous lights our wonderful singers our wonderful preachers and communicators they're all great and wonderful talents great but talents never change the heart of a man. As persuasive as I might be able to be as I construct my words and talk through a sermon and break down a text, it's never changed the heart of a man. Ann and I were doing our devotion this week. I can't really do anything. I'm just sitting in a chair. So I got her to read to me. She's like, Anna, I don't feel like reading today. Will you just read to me? She's like, yeah, sure, I'll read. So we were reading, and uh, our devotion caused us to kind of uh, uh, reflect on all the things that are happening outside of America in the church, right? So not to get off on this, but it's so stirred in my heart. Uh, Like sometimes we just we don't realize what's going on here and abroad. We come here, hear me. I know that we're so used to hearing the the classic, oh well, the church needs to get better, we need to wake up, the American church is dead, we need reformation. And it just, we've heard it so much, it goes through one ear and out the other. I want you to hear me this morning. We're reading stories about men in China. There was one man that I was reading about. Um, this was after our devotion, actually. But um, one man who, uh, he was a, a small pastor of a church of about nine people in China. 
where there was a, um, they were teaching their, their kids the Bible, and um, the pastor of that church uh, got brought out of his house, and they brought his wife out, and they held him there as they skint his wife, like cut the skin off of her, and then killed her, and then killed him. Um, We had a pastor here from Pakistan right, a couple months ago that's had to put up with three church bombings where his friends have died in less than a year. His fellow pastors and workers in his own country. Right. What fascinates me is not the suffering that they go through. Right, you hear me tell a story like that, and immediately your heart goes, and you're like, oh my gosh, like that's terrible what's happening to them. And then you think about how grateful we should be about how great we have it here, right? But that's not where I want our thoughts to go this morning. What fascinates me is that they're that dedicated, and they got none of this. They walk for hours sometimes to be able to meet in an underground spot to be there six hours where they can read one book of the Bible because they don't have the whole thing. Reading about a man in Zimbabwe that um, went and was a missionary and uh, in the country that he was in, they would, you know, the Bible was suppressed, the Bible couldn't be read. Um, and so he had the, uh, the Song of Solomon and that's the only book of the Bible that he had to read for 29 years. And he never wavered in his faith one day. Continued in the mission field his whole life. In that one country with Song of Solomon. We got padded chairs. Technical preachers. Great musicians. They know how to move your emotions. But if all we actually had was him. Now, I mean, I mean, put yourself there. I know it's impossible for us to do because we're so wealthy and comfortable. Even the poorest person in here. Listen, I don't care how desperate your financial situation is. And I understand because I had a negative account in my bank account, bank account this past week. And I was like, good gosh, what are we going to do, right? I've been there. I know. I'm getting there. I'm going through this whole thing. It's poor as we might be in this room, we are so rich and so blessed. But hear me, hear me, hear me. But as wonderful as that is, and the fact that, that is, and how grateful we should be, in some ways it's troubling and it's scary because we put our comfort in it and our security in it. And we can applaud that, that we're so rich compared to the rest of the world. But if it was all taken away, is he enough? Because when I stand before God, and when you stand before God, he's not going to look at you and say, you did a great job dealing with your wealth or dealing with your poverty, and you made it through. When you stand before God, it's going to have nothing to do with your bank account. It's going to have nothing to do with your church attendance. What we built here. How many members we got to come to our college ministry, our youth ministry, our men's ministry, our women's ministry. When you, as an individual, stand before God, everything's going to come down to the quality of love that you had for His Son. And that's a frightening thought, friends. Because I can mask my lack of devotion with my productivity around the church. And you can try to mask the lack of devotion 
and affection for Jesus in your heart by how often you come here, how many notes you take, how many amens you give, and how well you dress. And I may never see what's in your heart when you get home. But there's one that does. And that's scary. It is. And maybe we need a wake-up call this morning. To say, where's the quality of love in my heart? How tender is my affection towards His voice? You look in Mark chapter 14. The very similar story. It's one that we know as the Garden of Gethsemane. I'm going to read it to you. Mark 14, verse 32 through 42. Are with me still? Okay. All right, I lost half the crowd, but that's okay. It's all good. Mark 14, 32. Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little further and fell on the ground and prayed that if it was possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping. Say sleeping. And said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch with one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again he went and he prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Then he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough, the hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. See, my betrayer is at hand. It's a very familiar passage in the sense that it was just Jesus and his disciples going to a wooded area where he was going to pray. In Mark chapter 1, they're so fascinated and in love with this man, so amazed by who he is and this journey that they're on with him, that they're willing to wipe the sleep from their eyes and follow him wherever he may go, even if it's just to get a sneak peek. Just to get one listen in to his prayer. And you would think that after all the miracles that they saw, they're listed out. Mark chapter 2, he hears a paralytic in Capernaum. In Mark 3, he heals a man with a withered hand. Mark 4, he calms the sea. They're about to die at sea and they watch him with his hand and with his voice calm the storm that was going to kill them. Mark 5, they see a man that has a legion of demons cast out. All of them right there, him completely set free. They see a woman with an issue of blood touch the hem of his garment, and just by touching the very clothing that he's wearing, she's healed. Mark 6, they see this man take loaves and fish that were meant for maybe one or two men feed a capacity crowd of over 5,000 people. 5,000 men, not counting women and children. Which means there was closer to ten or 15,000 people fed. They see the wonder and amazement of the Son of Man being transfigured on the mountain in Mark chapter 9. And you can go on and on with the miracles and with the signs and with the glory that followed this man that you would think would hold captive their gaze, would hold captive their hearts. But in history's greatest moment up until that point, when this man that they had been following was at the time of his greatest anguish, the time of greatest self-searching, the time where he was most vulnerable to the tactics of the enemy, They are nowhere to be found. Here's what's so amazing to me. In Mark 1, he goes away from them to try to get away from them to pray. In Mark 14, he invites them 
to come with him to pray. Mark 1, they're so fascinated that they go to a prayer meeting between him and the Father that are not even invited to. And by Mark 14, less than three years in between, after seeing every miracle, after seeing all the signs, they are invited to be hand in hand with Jesus in the greatest moment of history. And they're asleep. You know what this should do for us? A couple things. One, every person in here, and I've done it, that has set or laid in their bed at night and prayed, God, if you will just do this for me, I will follow you the rest of my life. That's a farce. Not going to happen. Because I'm going to tell you what. I remember being 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, and now 23. And many times in my life I've laid in my bed and I've said, God, if you'll just come through and be faithful here. God, if you'll just come through and show me that you are real and that you'll do this. And you know what? He's done it time and time and time and time again. And you know what I found? He's been faithful. He's been consistent. He's been loving, he's been powerful, and he's amazed me every step of the way. But you know what I found about my devotional life at times? Because you know what? It has nothing to do with how many miracles I see. It has nothing to do with how many times he comes through. Because guess what? He's going to. <laughs> every time. Hear me, the amount of devotion and affection that you have for him on a day-in, day-out basis, for the most part, is not dependent on him. It's dependent on you. Hear me, your salvation has nothing to do with you. It is every bit him and him pursuing you. But your relationship with him, that's in your hands. Now we serve a Jesus that is so faithful and graceful that every time he sees us veering to the right or to the left, he grabs us and pulls us in. Every time we get far away from him, he'll have those moments where he ignites our heart again. But what would it be like if he could find one man or one woman that he didn't have to waste his time going through months of process trying to bring your heart back to that place of discovery? How much time have I wasted even in my 23 years of existence and my 12 years of walking with the Lord? How much time have I wasted just going right and left and Him having to just pull my affection back? What would it be like if He found me faithful in the area of devotion? What could He do through my life if He could find me to be just as hot and just as fiery and just as passionate for His name and for His voice and for His wisdom and for His knowledge today as I was when I was just a 12, 13, and 14-year-old boy running into a pizza hut? The message today, and I'm walking around and it hurts my shoulder so bad, but I can't sit in a chair. So, But the message today is intended, it's so simple. It's not this grand revelation, it's just the Bible. The message is this today. Where, right now, is your heart? Right now, where is your heart? Are you saved? Sure. You have a relationship with the Lord? Yes. But have you left the first fruits of your relationship? Anna and I are in this wonderful honeymoon stage. And it is great, let me tell you. I love it. Marriage is fun. Right? But I want to be just as inclined to pursue her in 25 years as I am right now. 
So today I urge you, as my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, to go back to that place that I call discovery. When you're first in a relationship, what's fun and intriguing about relationship is the time called the discovery phase, right? So I remember being with Hannah, pursuing her, and we'd sit there and we'd text or we'd talk on the phone, and I'd be like, what's your favorite color? Really, that's mine too. I've never liked green in my life, but that's mine too. What's your favorite movie? Oh, Gone with the Wind? I would love to sit down for four hours and watch Gone with the Wind with you. Right? And what's so much fun is that, that time where you get to know her. Right? Or she gets to know you, and it's that fun, intriguing discovery phase where it's like, oh, I didn't know this about you. That's so cool. I want to know this about you. I want to know this about you. I want to know this about you. You know what the beautiful thing about being a lover of Jesus is? You never have to leave the discovery phase. I can sit here with Anna right now, and I can write down about 400 things that I know about her. And at some point, it's going to start dwindling down to a very, very, very small, less intriguing list of all the big things that are going on in her life. Right? I love finding new stuff out about her every day, but it's starting to get smaller and smaller and smaller. Like she likes to put her toothbrush on the right side of the sink instead of the left side of the sink, right? Here's the thing, I love her, and I will always love her through all that, and I will love finding stuff out about her. But with Jesus, the big stuff is never ending. Whether you want to go from the very beginning or to the very end, the cosmic questions of how did creation start, what did it look like, how many stars are there in the galaxy? How did you put this together? How did you put that together? What are you going to do then? What are you going to do? It never ends. Which means that our lack of fascination has nothing to do with the amount of capacity or the wonder or the greatness of who he is it has everything to do with our own pursuit of it i know not because i don't seek after it right i'm not amazed because i've chosen to pursue something else and what i'm so afraid of this is the thing that hit me as I was sitting in my recliner watching the British Open this morning, thinking about the sermon. Is I almost just felt the heart of the Father. Because you know that God's a missional God, right? Like he has a mission. He has a, a will that will be accomplished. And this is what turned my heart this morning. How many of us has God awakened our heart and started that initiation of relationship where our heart's on fire. In hopes that when we get to the most crucial point in our life, like where the disciples were, we would still be on fire. Because what I'm afraid of is this, that the church right now in the span of history, because right now is more important than two seconds ago, that we as the body of Christ in the area of devotion are still sleeping. And how different could history have been then and could be right now if the Son of Man got to join with the rest of the body and accomplish the will of the Father instead of us always just sitting back and saying, you know what, go. What if the Father is grieved because every person that He keeps coming to and lighting your fire and lighting your fire and lighting your fire, He has to keep coming back and lighting your fire and lighting your fire and lighting your fire and lighting your fire. And when are we going to be the church or the part of the body of Christ that steps up and says, you know what, Father, Son of Man, when you're in the most crucial point in history, I want to be right there with you. Not 20 steps behind. I want to accomplish the will of the Father with you. Come on, man. 
So as a, as a declaration, or I don't know what you call it, just as a, a plea to the house, let it start with us, right? The four or five hundred people collected, let it start with us. What are you going to do this week? What are you going to do this week that's going to reignite your fire for the Lord? Here's the deal, okay? And this is what I'm going to end with this. Is that once you lose it, you have to wait on Him to get it back. Hear me, hear me, okay? It's it's a picture of the priest in the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 6. God would come and light the fire of the altar, and then it was the priest's job to keep it burning. Hear me. The priest never lit the fire. God did. But then it was the priest's job to get it burning. And hear me. And this is just the reality of where we are. When you are cold and you are... um, Stagnant in your relationship with the Lord? Here's a scary kind of Calvinistic view of it, but you will not be passionate for Him if you've let your fire go out until He comes and lights it again. You can sit there and you can acknowledge with your head, you know what, I'm far away from where I used to be. I need to get back. But you know what? Nothing's going to change until he comes and lights your fire again. So what do we do in the waiting? Right? Is this not true that at times in your life you've been sitting in a service and you've heard a sermon like this before and someone's kind of called out where you are and where your heart is and you're like, you know what? I know that I need to get back to where I need to be, but I don't feel it. Right? You're like, I I know up here, but I, I can't get it going right here. Right, I'm sitting here, I'm saying, you know what, I know that my heart needs to be turned. I know that my affection needs to be changed. But I know it in my head, but I don't know it in my heart. Until that moment where he comes and lights the fire again, it ain't going to happen. But when he comes and he does sm- blow on the embers of your altar and the light starts to flicker and you feel the Holy Spirit rise up on you again, then it is your job to keep that fire going. I can't tell you, listen, 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 listen. I'm just, I'm, ta- I'm trying to talk practical and talk on a spiritual level with you here, okay? I don't know how many times I have missed God trying to come and relight my fire because I feel the Holy Spirit rising up in me, or I feel that turning, or I feel Him moving on my heart, but then I get sidetracked and focused on something else. What we have to do is when he's graceful enough to come and blow on our heart again, we have to take that moment captive and not move to the right or to the left, not focus on anything else, but begin to steward that into a burning flame again. Does that make sense? So in the meantime, if you're sitting here today and you're like, you know what, God, I don't feel it. I know in my head that I'm not where I need to be as far as where my heart is, but I know that I need to get back there. But you don't feel it in your heart yet. Here's what you have to do. You have to do what Abraham did. Abraham was in a burning hot covenant with God, and then Abraham messed up, went to a country, and lied, and then covenant with God started to get a little shaky. So what did Abraham do? Abraham backtracked and went back to the first place where he broke covenant with God. What we have to do in order to get back there is we have to go back to our first altar. We have to go back to the first fruits of our relationship where the fire of God got lit and go back and read the books that set your fire on, uh, set your heart ablaze. Go back and listen to those old songs that used to move your heart. Go back and read the passage of Scripture. Do whatever you got to do to get back to where it was first hardest and then steward it rightly again. Good? Okay. Y'all stand with me.
Here's what I want to do. I don't want to do an altar call this morning. I just want to take a couple minutes. It's 1140. We'll be out of here in a minute. But I just want to take a couple minutes, two or three. And I just want them to play. And I just want us to sit. Right? I don't want you to have an emotional moment where you come down to the altar and you say, God, I'm going to give you my life again. God, I'm going to give you my heart again. And then nothing happens when you go home. I want you to think about right now. If you know that the Lord has moved your heart and you're like, you know what, God, I'm not in the area of devotion or the place of devotion that I want to be, then I want you to sit with God where you're at and I want you to ask the Lord, Lord, what do I have to do to get back there? If you want the presence of God back in your life, then ask Him to come back into your life. If you want your fire to burn hot on the altar of your heart again, then ask Him to come with His flame and consume every part of your heart again. But just sit and be with the Lord. Y'all go ahead and just play. family, over the church, and then I'm going to release you and we can go, we can greet each other, 
but I just charge you that as I end my prayer and we leave today, make sure that the priority of your life is not wasted on obtaining anything other than a greater heart for the Son of Man. So Father, that's our prayer this morning. God, we pray that everything that has caused us to shift perspective as to what's important would be laid down at the altar of our heart. Father, we pray that the gospel, that the power of your grace and mercy, that the power of your gospel will come alive in our heart again. God, and that the presence of Jesus, the presence of the one that came and died for me, that took me out of darkness and into marvelous light. I pray that the presence of Jesus would be the priority of my life, the life of this church, the life of every individual under the sound of my voice, the, the, the life of every household that's represented here. God, I pray from our kids all the way up to our grandparents and great-grandparents that we would be found as a people that desire intimacy with the Father and intimacy with Jesus over everything else that the world may offer. Lord, that silver or gold don't move our hearts. Lord, that man's applause and approval doesn't move our hearts. That the race to prosperity and the American dream doesn't move our hearts. Father, that the need to be known does not move our heart. But that Jesus, you move our heart. That your voice, your leading, and your presence moves us in every way. Let us be defined by that. In your name I pray. Amen. Guys, we have baptism.